We have Pastor Brian Wolfmuller back on the program this week. Yes, and we are team tagging a sermon critique of Andy Stanley's nonetheless. He's come out with a new book called Irresistible, and he gives a sermon about it. Pastor Wolfmuller and I tackle this one in this episode. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms. This is this old distinction between the ministerial versus magisterial use of reason. And it's a dangerous sort of thing when we start picking and choosing the things that we like, because how do we know that we're right? We're happy to have Pastor Wolf Mueller back on the program. As always, very grateful to him for taking time out of what must be an extremely busy schedule. Uh, as a pastor um, and somewhat of a media figure himself uh, to appear on our podcast. And so we really very much appreciate that. Uh, But before we get to all that, we are going to replay the interview with uh, Monica Ochola that we had a couple weeks ago. uh, Just everybody, if anybody missed it, I want to put it up one more time, especially in in front of Pastor Wolf Mueller here. I think it uh, fits very well. Uh, And let her talk to you about Kivos Hope Academy. So uh, let's get on with that. So you're in a PhD program now for what? Well, I am doing a PhD program in what is called leadership studies. Okay. Uh, Leadership studies specifically, we're dealing with how organizations work. Uh, My focus within the sort of the reason why I wanted to do this was I wanted to look at how do I take that skill and apply it to the nonprofit organization, which is the school. So that was my main reason of why I wanted to do a PhD program, um, sort of looking at you know organizational change, uh, looking at how to, to run you know, a nonprofit organization, what does that entail? Um, because in terms of just the school itself, I think I just sort of jumped into it with you know with sort of experience as I go. But now I wanted to get the you know the theoretical part of it of what makes a school, makes an organization, how does one run an organization. So that was one of the major reasons why I got into the PhD program. Um, it's 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 been quite a ride. A lot of writing, a lot of reading, sure. a lot of good information, um, very excellent information that I I'm able to apply it very much into the school. So when I learn something in class, I'm able to apply that and go, oh, I can use this in my school. I can I can be able to use that practical into the school. Um, the school is something, and the project itself is something that's so dear to my heart. It goes all the way back to, to my dad. He was an orphan when he was young. And to see the Lutheran church actually come up and actually help him as an orphan. And now he is, you know, um, one of the leaders in the Lutheran church in Kenya. And then having him go back and um, be part of wanting to make a change for these kids. These kids are very poor, they're orphaned. Um, and so to be to be part of that, it's amazing to be able to say, yes, I, you know, I am a product of, of, you know, of a person who did not just leave home and, you know, get an education and then do something else with his life, but actually went back to his home and is now helping other kids also to sort of follow that same path. So then you see that ripple effect of, you know, a child who grew up as an orphan, is educated by the Lutheran Church, and then educates his children, who then come back to educate other people in the village. Right. Your father grew up an orphan in Kenya, mm-hmm. and because of a school just like we're trying to help Kibos, 
he was able to get you an education. Now, you, you were educated until what grade in Kenya? I was in Kenya in a school very similar to Kibbutz until I was about, uh, I was in about 6th, 7th grade okay. before my father then moved us here. He was doing his, um, his PhD at the seminary um, trying to be a pastor. And so he then brought us all here and we were then able to get an opportunity to also continue with our education. Um, and so I then went back to Kenya right after um, high school, I went back to Kenya and I wanted to be able able then to to you know to go back into my culture and to, to still be Kenyan and in doing that then I you know I was given the opportunity to then visit some kids who were orphans and we thought well it would be really nice to start a school and to be able to give that opportunity to other kids also who may not be able to get that and so him going through that process of being an orphan and being educated by the church he wanted to bring that back and have some kids also as the project is, you know, is now going on, also be educated, um, because it would be a shame for those who are educated to not educate the rest of the community. Right. It really would be a shame. Yeah. 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 Well, so and that's that's what's pretty amazing about this is you're you're one individual who came out of a school like that, and now you've got what a, almost 150 children at mm-hmm. this school, mm-hmm. all with the potential to do exactly what you're doing right now. So, now tell me some. We, we've got. We, kind of talk this in generalities we've got about 150 of these children tell me about some of the individuals at that school that kind of come to mind and maybe some of the stories behind them and maybe some of their names they come from different places they don't just come from one you know one different one small village we do do have a lot of kids who also come from different regions who actually stay at the school till we got a three that we've got a trimester the trimester there is three months and then they go back home but this is the only way for them to get the education, to be able to leave their homes and to come and stay there at the school. Um, and so this is really, really important for them to be able to then get that education. Um, some kids, actually, um, were able to, you know, to, to write to us and to let us know. Someone like Derek, for example, who comes from Kakamega, um, he says he loves school because it provides him with an opportunity to get skill and knowledge. Um, and then he says he loves the school particularly because... <clears throat> Excuse me, because he can be mentored by his teachers, um, and that without the school, he then would not be able to get an education. Um, he says, especially in terms of a well, he says that it would be great to have water in the school. It would be great to have, um, you know, especially drinking water in the school, so they wouldn't then leave their classrooms to go and get um, the water somewhere else. So someone like Derek, for example, I and I sort of see this in, in a lot of the kids there where just a simple act of allowing him to go to school without thinking about other things gives him an opportunity to you know to then get the skills to get the knowledge to get a job and to come back to his village right and so you know and, and also make an impact in his village um someone so, so now what what's what's Derek's situation like right now in Kenya is he does he have parents is he what kind of uh what kind of poverty or challenges is he is he facing uh um, he is he is a partial orphan, and so he does have he does live with his mother. Um, his father um, um, he is, is deceased, um, and so with children like Derek, you see a lot of it because a lot of them will then help the you know the the, the, the single parent to get food onto the table. They do not worry about education, and so when they get opportunity to go to school, that is a great thing for them to be able to be like other children and go to school, um, and you know and and be with their peers and be able to learn with their peers. It's a great opportunity for them. And so if a school like this did not exist for a person like Derek, he would be at home helping his mom in the farm trying to get food on the table. And so it's a situation where we don't just want him to get food on the table, but we want him to get the skills and the knowledge to be able to then um, 
feed himself even in the future. Right. Um, because when we don't get these kids to school, we are basically fueling this cycle of poverty. Mm. And so you have parents who raise their kids who are poor, and kids who don't go to school end up being very poor parents as well who raise kids who are also poor. Right. And right. so by opening a school like this for someone like Derek, we're giving him an opportunity to change his future. Right, right. And so, and so a, guy, a, a, a young man like Derek could turn into somebody just like your dad mm-hmm. who could have a daughter like you <laughs> and, and start, a, uh, start another school, et cetera, et cetera, and help. And really, you know, this is, you know, you're, we're helping one, one sm- small area of Kenya, mm-hmm. but, but the ramifications of this, is, you know, like you said, the ripple effect of this, is you just can't calculate it. Exactly. The ripple effect is amazing because, you know, right now we're leaving it, especially to the to different individuals who come up and say, hey, can we make a difference in our community? Yes, we've got the education, but what about those who are left behind? So if someone like Derek then ends up to being like someone like my dad, who ends up raising a daughter, who also wants to do something like this, we didn't just create, you know, out of that, we didn't just create an educated person. We created an educated person who wants to educate other people. Right. And so that is sort of our goal here. And the, the good thing about education is not just getting the knowledge and the skills. We also give them a way to also learn about God. Right. Because for them to then open a Bible and read it and teach others, my dad became a pastor. Mm. And he is not just touching the lives of these kids in school, but also different people within the community through the gospel. Right. And right. so we're not just giving education to these kids, we're also bringing the love of God to these kids. Right, right. Yes. That, that, makes, that makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. Well... Thank you very much for speaking with me about this. Um, we're looking forward to continuing to help you. And, uh, yeah, thanks for letting my listeners know about this. And we'll, we'll continue to soldier on to, 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 to create this ripple effect and have children educated, becoming pastors, becoming yes. Christian parents, and continuing to, to educate the, the, red, the remainder of Kenya out yeah. of poverty. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Matt. This was amazing. Thank you so much. So there you have it. Thanks again for Monica, to Monica for uh, uh, interviewing with me. We did a, actually a, my first live interview. She sat right next to me. We we did that interview together. It was it was wonderful. She's got such a great personality and such a heart and passion for those children in Kenya to to break out of the cycle of poverty. And not only that, to, but to be catechized in the Christian faith, uh, as you could tell from that interview. So we're just thrilled to be a part of Kibo Soap Academy and what they're doing there. Please do go to laymanstermsradio.org and donate $50. That's all it takes with the amount of listeners we have. It should be fairly simple. And again, I know it takes some, some people some time to get off the mark. It's time to get off the mark, folks. Let's, let's get this done. Let's fund this thing. And, it, and it's something that, it, again, as you've heard me talk about before, and you heard Monica just talk about, uh, there, you just can't put a measure on this. It's, this is something that your $50 will go on for generations to come. Uh, to, to help these children uh, both break out of the cycle of poverty by being educated and also being catechized into the Christian faith. So please donate your $50 at laymanstermsradio.org. Okay, so a couple of things. We, we just uh, put out our, our second part of our interview with Kyle J. Howard, and it was that was an interesting interview. I really enjoyed it. I thought the conversation was was helpful. It's been interesting to see kind of how uh, some of the blowback I've gotten on uh, uh, on Facebook about that. Uh, maybe particularly the memes I put up uh, provoked some conversation, which was excellent, which was good. And it's it's good that we talk about these things 
you know, it's important that we are not so polarized we're not willing to talk with, with one another. Um, Kyle and I pretty much disagree on everything. Now, I, I tried to step back in that interview and let him give, uh, give his solutions for what are obviously problems. Again, you know, if, if you listen to the interviews, you heard me talk about how I was worried, worried about uh, the, the incarceration rates among black men and the economic disparities between, uh, between blacks and whites. Uh, or if you want to put it a different way, between blacks and Asians. Asians, actually, we have a, Asians outclass whites as a group um, economically by uh, quite a shot, if we're to be, well, if we were just to look at the data. But, uh, but, but those are things I'm concerned about. Uh, now, the, the, so, so that's a common ground we share. Um, I think a lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that because we share common ground on something, um, that that uh, there's there's something strange going on. So for for Kyle and I to agree that the incarceration rates for for black men, for instance, are too high, doesn't mean that we agree on the solution to that. Um, so for instance, to, to, to illustrate this pretty well, uh, I put up a, a meme of Mandela talking about how you know it's not true liberty is is not where you have an, an oppressor oppressed relationship going on in a society you know it's it's not true liberty uh for the oppressed class to be to then become the oppressor class and, and oppress the former oppressors for you know an oppressive 300 years i know that's a lot of oppression but but that's the point see and that's that was mandela's vision at least in that speech now i got a lot a lot of blowback on that because people were saying, well, he was he was the head of, uh, you know, the, the ANC and, and these sorts of things, and um, he was violent, and his wife was violent. And they did horrible things to to accomplish their purposes, and um, I we can debate those things, uh, but the point is, is that the 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 vision in that speech that Mandela cast was one with which we should agree without agreeing with his whole political agenda or what he did or what his life stood for or all the nuances of that thing. There's no two people. That I started this interview off with, with Kyle saying there's no two people that are going to agree on, on everything concerning these issues. It's, it's nuanced. It's, it's complicated. Um, and it's, but what, what we need to do is try to find common ground to start and say, hey, at least we agree that this is a bad thing and something should be done. Now, what should that thing be? And let's reason together through that. And like Kyle pointed out, in charity and in love based on Holy Scripture and, and that's going to get us there. So I think that's that's super important. And you know, while maybe some of you wanted maybe you wanted to see me be a little bit more aggressive uh, with, with those interviews, uh, you know, my my point was really to to establish a, a relationship with Kyle and listen. It's very important that we listen. You remember David Platt's um, lecture? This is one point he was spot on about: is that we be, should be just like um, just like Holy Scripture teaches us, Saint James, I believe. That we should be slow to speak and quick to listen. That's very important. That's very difficult for an individual like myself who is quick to speak, quick to judge, quick to criticize, and these sorts of things. We, we, need, to be, we need to give more space for people to speak and, and back off and be willing to listen and maybe not give our opinion um, that time. Just say, okay, it's your turn to speak. I'm just going to ask the questions. I'm not going to try to uh, in, enter into a debate with you at this point about this, but let the person speak and, and hear what they have to say and genuinely consider uh, their opinion. 
I think that's that's critically important, especially at this time. And and we we've got to do something along these lines. I would imagine. I mean, um, and and the thing of it is, you know, in in real life, I mean, that's another thing that I, that I kind of want to point out in all of this. You know, some people kind of brought to my attention that that Kyle's tweets t- tend to be on the incendiary side on, on race, and I agree, they are. They're very incendiary, but. If you can learn anything, you should learn this. Don't don't judge people solely based on the, their incendiary messaging on social media. People, I mean, I'm guilty of this. I sit around, I have a couple of beers with Jen, and then I jump on Facebook, and I've kind of got you know some of that liquid courage in me, and I and I say something dumb. I've done that a million times, and if somebody judges me on that, and that's that's their final judgment. That you know, from from that stupid thing I said on Facebook one time, um, or the, those few times that I said stupid things, or that period of time, whatever. What what I found is it's it's a really bad idea to to, to judge people based on any of that. It's it's just <laughs> I I don't know how else to put it. I mean, Twitter and Facebook, generally speaking, sometimes some good things can be talked about on Twitter and Facebook, and, and some genuine discussions can be had. But but to take people's you know kind of hey, I just tweeted this out, you know. Uh, idea and, and that's that's the uh, platform platform from which you're going to critique them. I think that's a really bad idea, and I think that's the major mistake Dr. James White is making. Is he's judging Kyle based on his tweets, and I think that's a really uh, not as intelligent of a way to approach things as could be approached. Um, it, it's much better, I think, as Kyle and I demonstrated, if two men will sit down together and reason together. That's what Holy Scripture teaches us. Let us brothers let us reason together so i would encourage that i know that's difficult it's difficult for me because i you know i i want to jump to those conclusions i want to you know join the mob and jump on this and that or the other you know bandwagon whatever the the argument du jour happened to be that day i want i want to jump on it but uh, but that's not the move that's not the move The, the idea is if you see somebody that that is incendiary like that Invite him to have a real conversation with you in some, in some format, maybe a personal message or you know, even a phone conversation or a Skype conversation. I think that's this kind of thing is really important because you know if if you if we don't do those things, I think that's that's how social media beats us. It ends up polarizing us sometimes when we don't even really need to be need to be polarized. You know, hopefully, if you noticed that interview as well, while I did treat it with kid gloves and I was maybe a little too uh, soft in, in some places, um, it you know. There, there, there was, there was some challenge there. There was some, you know, trying to trying to get Kyle to think about some of these things and, and think through them. And when that when those approaches are taken, I think we genu- genuinely can reach some understanding. The problem is we don't really talk to each other anymore. And, and most of the time, Facebook and Twitter don't count. We can make those things count. I've had engagements on Facebook, especially Twitter is a little bit more difficult. Twitter sometimes, but but it's it's really hard to really talk to each other. Um, through those mediums, I think we can. I think we can initiate contact or, or conversation through those things. But at the end of the day, if we really care about this stuff, and we're not just we're not just out there trolling, uh, we we really want to see conversations had. Then we've got to take those next step. Okay, so there's my diatribe on that. And I know you guys are all waiting to get to Pastor Wolf Mueller and I uh, critiquing critiquing Pastor Anthony Stanley's sermon. And so I won't gild the lily any further. Here we go with Pastor uh, Pastor Wolfmuller and I's critique of Andy Stanley's sermon called Irresistible. Here we go.
hear me all right? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me? Yes. Now, can you tell me if this sounds like I'm scratching a microphone? Yes. Can you hear that? That sounds okay, perfect. E- that sounds exactly like you're scratching a microphone. That's excellent. That's good. <laughs> the only thing that's not good is that you're not in Indiana. What the heck? Hey, man. <laughs> have you have you ever visited Colorado? I have. It's gorgeous and beautiful and why well, other than the fact that you could come have beers with me, you know. <laughs> Make a compelling point, but uh, right, yeah, the the Rocky Mountains, skiing, camping, beauty. Plus, I, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the the people at Aurora would would miss you, shall we say? They they were, uh, yeah, they, I think they probably would. Although yeah. I think they'd miss me less than they think they would miss me. <laughs> well, like the, like every time they hear another pastor preach the gospel, they're like, hey, wait a minute, there's more than one of you guys. I'm like, yeah. Right. There's tons of us. Right. Right. Sheesh. Yep. 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 Well. Um. I, well, I got to tell you, I, I. I. Yeah, I've got I've got a pretty good one right here in Fort Wayne myself. So. Uh. Anyway. There, yeah. You, you know. You. You. Uh. You Lutheran guys. You kind of do a pretty nice job at that sort of thing. So. Anyway. Well, it's the only. We better do good at that because it's the only thing we know how to do. Right. The only. What did we say? This. The only thing the Lutherans are good at is being Lutheran. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we don't excel at, at, at too much else. Okay. Um. So, evidently, Andy Stanley's on this crusade to, in order to reach more people, he wants to downplay the Old Testament in particular. And he's given several sermon series about this, and now this is all culminated. In a book he's written called Irresistible, he wants he wants to make the church, he wants to break down these barriers that he believes that unbelievers uh, have toward returning to the church and this sort of thing. And he believes that one of the barriers that the church is still holding on to is our connection to the Old Testament. Sheesh. Yeah, and really, this is this stems from his training at Dallas Seminary, where that's where I went to seminary as well. So I understand all this. He's a dispensationalist, you know, uh, pretty much full bore, and he's got his own version of it, which is pretty typical of dispensationalists. They all have their own version of it. And so I heard this I heard this sermon, and I thought it would be pretty interesting for us to, you know, for especially to get your thoughts on it, because everybody, you know, all my listeners have heard me uh, rant about this myself. So I've got several clips from this sermon, and basically what I'm going to do is play them and just get your reaction. Right on. Okay, cool. Let's see. Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. In the early days, in fact, we continue this, but in the early days, the thing that set us apart from other churches is that we were focused on the church environment. In fact, we had three things that were guiding kind of lights as we established these churches all over the city and all around the country. We wanted appealing settings. That's why the first time you came here, if you'd come from a traditional church, it was like, wow, you know, it feels more like home than a church. Engaging communication. It wasn't enough to tell the truth. We wanted to tell the truth in a way that was engaging. 
teaching, especially for middle school students, high school students, college students, and adults, and helpful content. This was the thing I was always just banging the table about. Hey, it was true, but was it helpful? It was true, but was it helpful? And our goal was not to make church easier or more interesting for church people. Again, it was to make it more appealing and more engaging for people who had left the church, who had walked away from the church, or who were considering faith for the very first time. Is it, uh, is it true, but is it helpful? So he's, mm-hmm. he's trying to kind of establish these parameters on how to put together a, a church that would be attractive to unbelievers, evidently. And the thing that stuck out to me was, uh, yeah, it might be true, but is it helpful? Which was a that, very now, strange thing. Yeah, I, well, I will tell you what, Matthew. It's as far as this goes. That's a. I think that's a fine distinction. The the danger is going to be, maybe two dangers, two questions. What do you mean by helpful? And more importantly, who gets to decide what's helpful? You know, is it Andy Stanley who's going to decide what's going to be helpful for people or not? And do we mean by helpful the things that are going to be like help us to get out of debt, help us to be, live better lives, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. If we if we assume that not all things that are true are equally helpful, that, which is just a very – it's a true thing. I mean that the Rockies are in the playoffs tonight is a that's – a, that's a true statement, but it's not that helpful. I mean unless you're a Rockies fan, it's nice, but it's not – that's not as helpful as the truth that Jesus died to forgive our sins. So I think it's okay to make that distinction, but here's the thing. It, let's let's let the Holy Spirit decide what's helpful, and we know what the Holy Spirit thinks is helpful because He's put the things that we need to know in the Bible. There's a great danger of saying, "Well, I can determine better than the Holy Spirit what's going to be helpful," and so I can go and 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 find the things in the Bible that are going to be helpful and the things that are not going to be helpful, and that's where the real danger is that that it's we who are determining the helpful things rather than the Holy Spirit, who Jesus even calls the helper <laughs> in, right. in, in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. Right, right. Well, and, and here's what I detect in this is, so for instance, the, the book of Joshua, which, you know, we've got some explaining to do on that, I'll admit, but the book of Joshua may be true, but in, in Andy Stanley's mind, it's not going to be very helpful for him to preach from the book of Joshua because it's just... Uh, difficult if you don't understand uh, the context of it and how to explain yeah. it and that sort of things. Yes. Yeah. So then, he, and he has this whole thing about. So here we started this church and we wanted to be helpful to people. So we're asking the question: How can we take the the scripture and how can we make the scripture more helpful? And that is a really dangerous path to start down because it puts us as lords over the scripture. We're gonna say, hey, we. We appreciate your work, Holy Spirit, uh, in inspiring the Bible, but we, but a good thing we're here to help you even more to determine what's going to be helpful for people to know. That is dangerous. Right, 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 exactly. Okay, here is the next clip. Currently, about 25% of everybody in America, 25% of Americans would consider, consider themselves religiously unaffiliated. Now, that's a high number, but the staggering statistic and the thing that bothers me, and I want it to bother you, is this. In 2007, it was just 16%. 16% to 25%, that is millions and millions of people. And the thing that bothers me the most and the thing that I want to bother you the most is this, that 35% of men and women, 35% of men and women who are under 35 years old 
considered themselves religiously unaffiliated, and most of them grew up in church. Most of them grew up going to camp. Most of them grew up hearing the same kinds of sermons that many of us heard growing up. And maybe most alarmingly of all is this, that 70% of the unaffiliated, the nuns, the non-religiously affiliated, about 70% view the Bible as completely irrelevant. Ancient myth, ancient literature, certainly not inspired. And more and more and more, there is a, there is a movement to argue that the Bible is not only a fiction, that the Bible is harmful. And when this group of people are surveyed, and the Pew Research Center does these surveys every other year, and they get more and more and more statistics, at the end of the day, when this group of people are asked, why did you leave your religion? Why are you religiously unaffiliated? Why did you walk away from your local church? Why did you walk away from a church you grew up in, that your parents grew up in? The bottom, there's many, many presenting reasons. But at the bottom of it all, the primary answer is simply this. They just don't believe any more. Okay, so here's my question to you, given that clip. Who really is to blame? Now, you've written a book about this, if I recall. In fact, uh, there is a midweek Bible study going on right now at my, at my local congregation who is studying your book. Really? Indeed. Man, people are getting desperate. They are. <laughs> they are. I, I, I asked Pastor Peterson, I'm like, what the heck? Why are you, know, why are you guys studying Wolf Mueller's nonsense? But... <laughs> But, Doesn't someone around right there have a copy of the Bible? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, they studied Luther last, you know, last quarter, so they figured, you know, uh, they, they, they wanted down. to kind of scrape the bottom of the barrel. I don't know. Uh, but uh, so, um, you of all people, I think, should be able to answer this question. In, in, in all seriousness, who really is to blame for the rise of the nuns? What What would be your opinion uh, on on that little factoid? The the fact that. We have so many religiously unaffiliated people um, in, in our country, and the statistics are showing that despite all of the uh, work, shall we say, that megachurches are doing and seemingly bringing in all these people by their, uh, quote-unquote, as Stanley would put it, irresistible means, uh, why do we still have all these people uh, fleeing faith? What, what, what do you think is to, to account for that? This is a tricky question. Um I think, and and I don't, I haven't, I haven't spent a ton of time thinking about this. I mean, there, so there's there's plenty of blame to go around. Although the thing that when we start assigning blame to these sorts of things, we should we should really remember that Jesus still sits on the throne. He still is ascended. Uh, he still is uh, the Lord of Lords, and he rules and reigns, and does all things for the sake of the church, so that. So that we, what we don't want to do is start saying that the devil is the is in charge, and for some reason Jesus is not. That things are not going. That Jesus has has stopped ruling and reigning all things for the sake of the church. So, so that's going to be the thing that we want to make sure that we don't do. Because one, and because one of the things that guys like this, um, whenever whenever you start hear this, hearing this sort of preaching, look at how many pagans there are. There used to be only like ten pagans, and now there's ten million pagans. <laughs> And we got to do something about it. They're, they're, um, it you, it's people they, uh, they, they're working you up into a frenzy, into this sort of emergency kind of thinking. And and it's true that if there's a if there's an emergency, then there are no rules. The the, the old law is, and th I think this comes from Cicero, and it's quoted by Luther in the Large Catechism. He said, "Necessity knows no law." 
So when you have an emergency, everyone's a doctor, everyone's a paramedic, everyone's a, a field surgeon, everyone, I mean, everybody is an emergency responder. But then what happens is, if so people come along and they try to create a theological emergency or an evangelism emergency or a mission emergency. And and the the thing that you can do in an emergency situation is you can break the normal rules. So normally it's the pastor's vocation to preach, but if it's an emergency situation, now everybody's a minister. Normally well, we have an orderly liturgical service, but if it's a youth evangelism emergency, now you can abandon that sort of order and go for whatever you like. So, so normally when th- these kind of statistics are being brought up, they're being brought up for the purpose of manipulating you, and you know what's going to come next is some sort of some sort of change. I mean, the reason why he's preaching this way is because he's got some sort of thing that he wants to do. He's got to get everybody on board. He's got to wear down their resistance because, after all, it's an emergency. So you're, if, if he just said, hey, we're going to try this, we're going to do this, people would say, no, that's dumb, that's crazy. But if you can convince people that it's an emergency, it's a matter of necessity, then you'll get away with it easier. Now, why is it that there are so many more nuns? Probably in, the, in our culture, being Christian has gone from – it used to be, even when I was growing up, that that good people and Christians were that that's what it meant if you were a Christian you were even insulted by being called like a goody two-shoe or holier than thou so that so that the the so that Christianity held the moral high ground well things have so shifted in our culture that no longer is it considered that the Christians are the moral ones but in fact Christianity itself is considered immoral so if you were being if you were a Christian in order just to be considered a good person, now if you want to be considered a good person, you have to unaffiliate with Christianity. Well, you were probably never a Christian to begin with. I mean, if you were just calling yourself a Christian because you wanted to be considered good, but now you want to be considered good, so you call yourself a tolerant, spiritual but not religious person. That's probably why the shift is uh, taking place. That would be that would be my guess. It also doesn't hurt just to throw in a jab at churches like Andy Stanley's is these guys have huge revolving doors. So they're busy tempting people away from the churches that they grew up in, and then they help them ride out the back door by not teaching them any doctrine or theology at all. Right, right. Well, and I I can certainly attest to that. I was a youth pastor at, well, what used to be considered a megachurch. I don't know what the number is anymore, but at the time, uh, when they counted these things, the church I was at was considered to be a megachurch. And I can literally count uh, on one hand how many of those children that I taught still uh, are are practicing Christians, still go to church, you know, still have their faith if they had it even before. So... Your 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 point is spot on because while these type of tactics that megachurches tend to use will attract a large crowd, the door is revolving. You know, so over over the course of the time I was at that megachurch, you know, maybe maybe I had you know six or eight hundred uh, teenagers uh, under my teaching, uh, but I can literally count on one hand. How many that that I know of? Now there might be more. There might be more, but that I know of, uh, that are still practicing their faith, which which speaks to your your revolving door idea, albeit it's anecdotal. Uh, I think if you if you look at the the uh, the numbers that the, that megachurches put out, and I have, 
uh, that that's that's actually that's spot on. They they do these things. They attract people in, uh, but as soon as they whatever get bored with it or so on and so forth, they, they're right out the door. And there's there's no real faith being established there whatsoever. That's right. It's the the parable that Jesus tells about the seed being thrown in in the stones. It grows up quickly, but then but then the tough times come along and it fades away. This is the great danger of of the, of the shallowness of American Christianity. Right. 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 Exactly. Okay, let's get this next clip in here. This calls for a different approach to what we're doing. And post 9/11, this created the perfect story. So uh, there it is, Matthew, by the way. That's the thing. We got to do something different. That's why the whole setup came. Right, right, yes, right, exactly, yeah, pointed that, pointed that right out, yeah, you're spot on, and what's, you know, <laughs> when this other shoe drops, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty shocking what the, the, the thing that Stanley is after here, uh, as far as what they need to do differently this time. Now, Stanley and everybody involved in the church growth movement have talked about doing things differently, uh, and it was funny because uh, I, I distinctly recall I had I had an assistant pastor when I was when I was at that mega church, and he he asked me one time. He said, "You know what? How how are we judging um, whether or not what we're doing is right?" And what I said was, "Results. We're getting results. We're seeing kids make commitments. We're seeing kids be baptized, etc. And as long as long as we're getting the results, we'll keep doing what we're doing. The problem is is when the results stop coming, then." what's the move uh you know where how far are you willing to go and that's what's really fascinating and and frightening uh about where stanley's gonna go with this so yeah you'll see what i'm talking about when we get to it skeptics exploited a flaw in the modern version of christianity because they had something that previous generations of atheists and skeptics didn't have they had the internet. They had an all-access pass to every single curious person in the world. And they have leveraged this extraordinary tool to preach their gospel of disbelief to undermine the credibility of Christianity. And they have exploited a flaw in our modern post-Reformation version of Christianity. A flaw that is very difficult, almost impossible to exploit in a culture that holds the Bible in high esteem. And the flaw is simply this. It's a false assumption. It is a shared false assumption regarding the foundation of Christianity. And when I say a shared assumption, I mean this, that Christians assume this, non-Christians assume this, post-Christians assume this, your son and daughter or grandson or granddaughter that walked away from faith assume this. If you're considering losing faith or dismissing your faith or walking away from faith, this is something that you assume as well. And this false assumption that has been with us since the Reformation has finally begun to take root and we're finally paying a price for it. And it's why I wanted to talk to you about it and it's why I wrote the book irresistible. Since the Reformation, and we're not going to go back and do a lot of history, but since the Reformation, Protestant leaders, teachers, and preachers have taught that the Scripture is the final authority for Christians. 
This was the whole point of the Reformation, that the church isn't the final authority, that the scripture, the Bible, is the final authority for Christians. In fact, we, most of us grew up hearing that or thinking that. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you assume, well, the Bible is marching orders for Christians. So consequently, for generations and generations and generations, preachers have said, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, the Word of God says, the Word of God says. And when you hear the Word of God says and the Bible says, basically what they're communicating is, at the end of the day, the bottom line is if the Bible says it, that's all we need to know. If the Bible teaches it, we believe it. If the Bible says it, then that settles it. And that kind of language, generation after generation after generation, has left generations of Christians assuming that the Bible is the foundation of our faith. Don't leave early. It's not. And it never has been. But most modern Christians think it is. Most of the Christians that left church thought it was. Most of the generation that walked away from church walked away from church assuming it is. And modern skeptics and those that are undermining the Christian faith assume that it is the foundation of our faith as well. And this assumption has left many with the impression, and understandably so, that as the Bible goes, so goes the Christian faith. If you can undermine the credibility of the Bible, all 66 books, or any one of the 66 books, or any part of any one of the 66 books of the Bible, that Christianity comes tumbling down. As you've heard me say before, it's like a 66-card house of cards. And we're going to pull out Genesis, or we're going to pull out Leviticus, or we're going to pull out something in Revelation, or we're going to pull out some supposed you know, contradiction in the resurrection stories out of the Gospels. And if one part of it isn't true, then the Bible isn't true. And if the Bible isn't true, Christianity is false. In fact, one of the most prominent new atheists in the introduction to one of his books, I'm not going to mention his name or the book right now, we're going to talk about that in the series to come. In the introduction of the book, he says this. He says, come on, Christians, this is how it works. If Christianity is true, then I have a frightful surprise waiting for me when I die. But if the Bible is false, then Christianity is false and you're all living a fairy tale. This is the assumption of the modern church. And I understand how we got there, and I'm not being critical of anybody, but the time has come for us to call out and draw a circle around this false assumption. Not for our sake, I'm fine. Not for your sake, you're probably fine. For your children's sake, for your grandchildren's sake, for this generation's sake, and for the sake of the next. This call... Okay, so I'm just going to let you react to that one. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm... It's kind of going to depend on what he's going to replace it with, but this has been so. Um, in other words, if he's going to say something like Christianity, the Bible is not the foundation, but Jesus is the foundation, or the gospel is the foundation, or something like that, then you might have there might be room for that sort of conversation. But of course, we get to Jesus, we get to law and gospel, we get to the truth of the Scripture precisely through the preaching of the prophets and the apostles, and Jesus. I, I've been dealing with this lately because I put a little video up on the on the YouTube channel. I'm famous on YouTube. I got like 18 people following now. I just got one more person to subscribe to the YouTube channel than actually listens to Table Talk Radio. So now it gets all my attention. <laughs> nice. Uh, but but I wrote uh, or I did a little video about um, about the difference between the Lutherans and the Catholics on the supper, and they're all oh, they, they, their response is something like, "Well." Uh, Whatever, whatever. You should be Catholic because we're the true church. Jesus didn't give the, Jesus didn't establish the Bible. He established the church. Jesus didn't institute the Bible. He instituted the church. This is this sort of 
anti-Lutheran rhetoric, and it comes all the time. I mean, we're, we're used to hearing it. it, it it's been coming at us from the time of the Reformation, and it sounds like we're setting up for something like that. Uh, especially when we say, okay, we could. I suppose we could say that that, that Jesus is the foundation of uh, of our faith, not the the scriptures. But it's precisely Jesus who gives us the scriptures, and we certainly wouldn't want to start setting Jesus against the Bible. That's the point. But I don't know. We got to see what he says. What What are your thoughts on this so far? Well, so. He makes a move that apologetically, in a, in a sense, makes sense because really what, I mean, what even historic, uh, even what secular historians agree on is that really what launched uh, the Christian religion was the resurrection. So, so it was these followers of Jesus and even skeptics of Jesus like St. Paul and St. James who uh, who ended up converting to Christianity after the resurrection event uh, that compels historians to say that that these people had experiences with a person they believed rose from the dead. That's that's what most even again secular historians will point to to say that this is really what launched the Christian religion. It wasn't so much Jesus's life, although that's a part of it. It wasn't his. his um, his unjust crucifixion, although that's a part of it, it was really this uh, the resurrection that that launched the Christian religion. And what Stanley wants to say is that's that's really ultimately the foundation of our faith. It's it's an event. It's the resurrection of Christ. Now I'm completely on board with you. And as you know, as we go through some more of these clips, we're, we're going to delve into this. But my question to Pastor Stanley would be. Uh, where do you find out about the resurrection? What evidence right. do, you, do you present? I mean, uh, w- without the scriptures, uh, we wouldn't know about these things. Uh, mm-hmm. And then on top of that, I, I think another thing that plays in here, especially with us as Lutherans, is that we are convinced, and we believe the scripture testifies to this. I mean, Genesis 1 demonstrates this you know, beyond doubt, that God's word has power. It has power to save. So, so... You know this. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, he's trying to solve the whole problem of the new atheist. This is really what he's after. He's he's struggling struggling with this attack on the Old Testament. Um, you know the the problems in the Old Testament. You know the the genocides in Joshua. The the you know seemingly grievous commands that are given in in Deuteronomy in the Jewish law code. These sorts of things. He's trying to circumvent that by saying, you know what, we as Christians aren't really that attached. To the Bible, uh, mm. especially the Old Testament, and so we need to quit. Try, we need to quit trying to defend the Old Testament, and we need to just defend the resurrection. Uh, but but the but there there's many problems with it. But with the the major problem with with that whole approach, in, in my estimation, is that this whole thing hangs together. So in other words, if we can't trust what um, what Genesis teaches, how can we trust what First Corinthians fifteen teaches? That's that's really you know maybe maybe you could speak to that a little bit, um, you know because again I've I've had that argument put to me from my more uh, postmodern Christian friends. They say, well, no, no, we can you can you can trust certain parts of the Bible and other parts of the Bible you can't trust. And I'm like, well, how do we make that determination? It seems to me right. like the whole thing has to hang together. Well, there's it, what we what we really are, are talking about, and it comes down to this question of the use of reason. 
um, are, when we when we when we're invited when we invite uh, people to trust in the scriptures, we're inviting them to to um, trust in the Word of God uh, high, more than their own um, than their own judgment. So, so th- this is this old distinction between the ministerial versus magisterial use of reason, and um, and it's a dangerous sort of thing when we start picking and choosing the things that we like because h- how do we know that we're right? I mean, how do we know that? So, so let's say you know we are particularly appalled by any sort of slavery in our own day. So we look at those parts of the Bible, and um, and and where it gives instructions for how masters ought to be generous and kind to their to their slaves, and we say, oh my goodness, how could they have possibly said those sorts of things? How, how, how can you abide by that sort of morality? We've got a different morality, which says something else, you know, that who knows, what's our, whatever our morality is. There. But, that, but the morality that people have today is going to be different than the morality that people have in 40 years. I mean, it keeps changing. It's one of the big things that people are wrestling with now with the whole business with the um, accusations against the nominee for the Supreme Court Brett Kavanaugh what what, what were the what were sort of the, the the cultural sexual standards in the 1980s versus now after the me too movement well how, how do we know what they're going to be in 20 years yep. uh, how, how do we know that uh, how do we know that that uh, we're gonna say that that for example um, People and uh, and animals can't be married to each other. I mean, who know, who knows? Yeah. And so and so we use our own kind of standard of of morality to come along and and stand in judgment over the scriptures. And and when we start going down that path, it's a it's just there's no end to it. There's there's no way to know that the things that I'm disgusted with in the Bible today aren't going to be the things that I delight in next week, and that and the things that I liked this week are going to be the things that I'm disgusted in in two weeks from now, because there's nothing that stands uh, still. If 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 culture does anything, it changes, and so if you have no uh, uh, objective standard of what's of truth or right or wrong outside of the culture, then then you're. I mean, it's just gonna. It's just a slippery slope that doesn't keep. That never stops slipping. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and one thing I, I like to say is, I, I would love to debate Sam Harris one day. Probably will never happen. You know, ninety nine percent chance. But but one thing I would ask Sam Harris is uh, is about uh, about the Nazis. And and I make this this is the thing that's that's kind of stumped my more, shall we say, you know, postmodern, you know. Uh, Left-leaning Christian friends, as I, I, I've said, okay, imagine that you've got um, ten Nazi type of regimes ruling in a certain area of land. I mean, w- would you would you say that it was wrong for the United States to wipe out the Nazis? <laughs> and, and the light the, the light bulbs kind of start to come on, and it's interesting because Sam Harris has come out and talked about Islam. And said that you know even you know even a preemptive nuclear strike to prevent if we could do a preemptive nuclear strike to prevent uh, Islamic terrorism in some way shape manner or form he would be in favor of it so it's it, it, even with Sam Harris who uh, who would who would not share our views on the Bible uh, would be in favor of of quote unquote wiping out somebody in order to prevent uh, more violence so. Um, that seems pretty much to me like what's going on in in Joshua, where where you've got cultures who are who are burning children, 
um, in, in the service uh, of Moloch and these sorts of things. Uh, you know, so it, that's I think that's spot on to say that, you know, the, the morality shifts and, and what we embrace in, in Holy Scripture uh, can, can, you know, if, if we use that uh, approach to what we're going to pick out or cherry pick out of Holy Scripture as being relevant or, or something that's helpful, uh, to use Stanley's term, uh, then, then we, we really do get on a slippery slope that, that, that never ends. So um, that's, you know, that's kind of really his tact. He, he, he is convinced that our attachment, particularly to the Old Testament, is something that's a hindrance to people coming to faith. And, and that's tragic to me because there's so much in the Old Testament that, you know, uh, that I, that for me personally, and again, this is anecdotal, but, you know, seeing the, the, the Old Testament as the way uh, Luther and, and Melanchthon and Chemnitz, uh, Gerhardt, you know, these guys uh, uh, um, exposited and explained the Old Testament uh, ha- has been, you know, something that's just been so refreshing and eye-opening uh, to, to me, you know, to, to, to discount the Old Testament, to say, ah, well, let's not, let's not worry about that. Let's leave that behind because it's a hindrance to faith uh, is, a, I think, a major mistake. Yeah, 100%. I think it's, I'm convinced, more and more convinced, that it was by being a professor of the Old Testament that Martin Luther discovered the distinction between law and gospel. That's how sure. that whole thing came about, because that's how the prophets preached, law and gospel. And if uh, if we miss the Old Testament, we miss we miss a lot. But it's, I think what what's interesting is, so, so the Bible, when whenever the Bible comes to us, it's a wrestling. It's yeah. not a... If if the Bible if God was just telling us things that we knew already or things that we already thought or things that we would always agree with then he wouldn't have to t- he wouldn't have to give us the he wouldn't have to send the prophets but constantly you see the prophets and the, and the apostles sent in uh, sent in opposition to what it was the current way of thinking and so we shouldn't expect anything different from the Bible but we we live in this sort of peaceful age that doesn't want to see that doesn't want to see the fighting and the result is then because the prophetic word comes to us in opposition to everything that we normally know then it it seems distasteful to us at least i think that's part of the trouble the bible the bible seems like ah oh, if you start if you start believing what the bible says taking it literally then you're going to be in fights so let's just avoid fights but the bible itself is a fight it's a fight from it's started by God. Well, I suppose started by the devil and Adam and Eve, but but God is the one who initiates the gospel fight of the Scripture, yeah. and it's a fight against our flesh, a fight against the old man, a fight against the devil, a fight against our sin, a fight even against our reason. And so, if we are unwilling to engage in that fight, then we're going to have to let the prophetic word go. Right, right, right. Makes sense. All right, let me let me throw this one at you. This this should be interesting. Let's see how this goes. The skeptics have done a masterful job exploiting this false assumption about Christianity. And what has the church done? How has the church responded? In my opinion, the church has done nothing. Churches preach and teach as they've always preached and they've always taught. 
They keep preaching the same way. They just tell children, here's your Bible. It's all true. Believe it. The children believe it because the children will believe anything adult tells them to believe. The, but the, most adults haven't read the Bible. They just assume it's all, you know, it's since, you know, the way, because of the way they received it, they've held on to their childhood view of the scripture. And consequently, they hand that off to another generation. And then they graduate from high school and we send them into an increasingly post-Christian culture. And when they come home with real academic questions, we give them Sunday school answers. And no one they're walking away. Um, is that how it is in your church, Pastor Wolf Mueller? You just hand children Bibles and... You know. Man, I hope not. I mean, it, 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 it is a damning accusation, and I suppose in some places it could be true that, you know, we don't... I mean, uh, I'm so I'm writing a book now, or I'm potentially theoretically writing a book now that is asking, inviting people to have a, a bit of a more mature faith, and one of the problems that I'm trying to address is is this is Sunday school theologies? We yeah. we think that the Bible is a, is a children's book, and we don't engage it on at an adult level. Um, we don't we don't see the, the the fullness of the scriptures and so forth, and that's a that is a danger, uh, and we should be addressing it. So I, I would suppose I I'll go for I'll go for this diagnostic that sometimes it's true that we don't um, that we don't address people's questions. Uh, with it, with a with a seriousness. Now, so, now most of the time, when people come back from college and they've got the stupid questions, they don't need a serious answer. They just can't, probably need a slap in the face because it's, it's stupid. I mean, most right. most challenges to the to Christianity are not that um, are they're not serious academic challenges. But there are a few sure. uh, challenges that come our way, and we ought to treat them seriously, and we ought to be training our kids up in what the church is classically called apologetics, defending the faith. Every Christian is a faith defender. And so we should know some things. We should know some things about sound reason. We should know some things about history and archaeology. We should know some things about um, the the moral and, and, and these kind of questions that come up against the Bible. Uh, and we should also recognize we have an advantage in this whole fight because because it's in re- it re- most people leave the church not because of... Um, not because of rational, sort of reasoned out, thoughtful reasons, but rather because of the conscience. They have a bad conscience. They want to appease their conscience or whatever. So they're coming up with stuff to 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 appease their conscience, and and that and we should be able to recognize that. We should know that. We know how much the conscience matters, and we should be able to address it. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. It brings. All right, so there you have it for this week. We'll have the remainder of this interview on next week, so be sure to tune in for that. In the meantime, please check us out on KNNA The Cross. Also, don't forget, donate your $50 to the Kenya Well Project, and we really appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Summer vacation, what you saw, where you went, or how much it cost. Instead, won't you tell me all the words that give me salvation, how he lived and how he died.